the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, sacred or outdated? Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio, a free thinker's look at 12-step culture today, now with less dogma and more bite. The key author to Alcoholics Anonymous said of our 12 traditions, these principles serve two interdependent functions, protection and progress. You can't have one without the other in a healthy society. Today, we see what AA stewards have to say. Two former AA World Service directors, one living and one dead, and one very alive delegate from Ontario, Canada. While some assume the big book and the 12 steps contained within are the centerpiece of any AA meeting, on today's show, we see if this is truth or myth. Let me tell you a story that was a wake-up call for me. I can't count the number of times so far this century that I've been involved in discussions about Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, and the role of this 1939 document in Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship. Because the book and the society share the same name, I'm afraid that people easily see them as inseparable. Today, it seems, AA is divided by those who, in this corner, swear by the life-giving salvation that the words of the big book impart on members, and, in this corner, members that feel stifled, persecuted, or insulted by the words. The big question is this. Who says the big book is so relevant? If one likes it, they can read it over and over again. If you don't, why do you care so much? Can your sobriety and your AA group get along without the big book? Who says it's the centerpiece of any AA meeting or discussion? The preamble. It describes AA. The 12 traditions define and defend our fellowship. Neither the traditions nor the preamble tout any book or any program as central to AA, the society, or AA membership status. To one member, AA membership and obedience to the 12-step program might be indistinguishable. Another member dismisses the whole 12 steps and enjoys a newfound freedom based on the group therapy of meetings the one-day-at-a-time program, and resignation, desire, and determination that are suggested in the only requirement for membership, a desire to stop drinking. In AA's newest pamphlet, Many Paths to Spirituality, Bill Wilson is quoted, The full individual liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy, whatever, should be a first consideration for us all. Let us not, therefore, pressure anyone with our individual or even our collective views. Let's always try to be inclusive rather than exclusive. It wasn't the book's authors or the founders that demanded reverence or strict adherence to any dogma. It was my generation that canonized the pioneers and deemed AA's early accounts as a sacred text. Sorry! But we did it, not them. This may shock any of you who started your recovery this century. 
I was two years sober or longer before I thumbed through Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, and about eight years sober before I read it from forward to page 164. In the 70s, where I came from at least, working the steps was done largely from the oral tradition to which AA was founded, one alcoholic talking to another, and sometimes another alcoholic and another. We were more likely to read a story out of the grapevine at a meeting than we were to read more about alcoholism or into action. In the 70s, the big book was no offense, but it was over 30 years old, and we hippies didn't trust anyone over 30. There was nothing sacred about the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It may have borrowed from the Abrahamic faiths, but it was no Koran, no Bible, and no Torah. A force that might mimic the big book Resentments, Fears, and Sex Conduct columns, but it might not. It might just be an autobiographic account of our faults, blunders, negative, selfish, and destructive tendencies. The important thing was to write down what we were most ashamed of and tell someone else. It was an ego-deflating, fault-reconciling exercise that taught me that I wasn't as evil or as smart as I thought I was. I wasn't a victim of circumstances, at least to the extent that I protested. In doing step five, I felt more dignity and less shame than I could ever recall. The term egomaniac with an inferiority complex didn't apply anymore. Oh, these extremes would wreak havoc on my life from time to time, but they were now visitors, not masters of my psyche. If there was any back-to-basics movement in AA in that era, it wasn't alive in Montreal, where I got sober. I am sure I read some of the stories out of the back of my third edition big book. When I couldn't get to a meeting, it was the next best thing. Hard to remember, but there was a time when there were no internet meetings, no chat groups. AA wasn't yet one million members, and now we're over two million. So that was then, and what about now? Maybe you've been in the middle of these discussions between the open-to-new-experience liberals and the preserve-the-integrity-of-the-message conservatives. Should two wives have been written by Lois instead of Bill? Should it be rewritten in a gender and sexual orientation neutral to loved ones? We agnostics ought to be in support of secular AA instead of a veiled threat to unbelievers. Can we get a second opinion? It's great that Dr. Silkworth offered some input about AA, and what he says holds up today. But who would treat an illness with 75-year-old modality? Appendix 3 from the big book offers more 20th century thumbs up from doctors. Still, who could blame a skeptic for thinking our practices were based on mythology and folklore? Some might think that non-alcoholics have no place in the text at all. Some would rather there were no doctor's opinions. No help from outside. Now, the male gender language and sexist tone that we find in the big book can't be where the magic of recovery resides, can it? That's the reasoning of some that think the book needs an update. Surely we can make the alcoholics through the first 164 pages and the gods we pray to, either male, 
female or genderless to respect our Muslim members. Where am I in this debate? I lean towards the idea that the big book is a textbook for mutual aid recovery from alcoholism. I liken it to a grade six math book. The principles of grade six math have not changed since 1939, but the way we talk to 11-year-olds sure has. What we've learned about teaching has improved. Every revised math book has new examples and speaks in a modern present-day vernacular. The wording of our 1939 grade six math book wasn't sacred, only the principles of mathematics are or were. Because it wasn't a sacred text, no one worried that the risk of changing the text was that some educational magical spell hidden in a comma or phrase somewhere would be broken if we were to inadvertently remove the phrase that the magic was hiding in. No one believed the words on the page were magic, so no one feared that carelessly changing one word or phrase for another could break the magic spell, casting future 11-year-olds into an abyss of ignorance and ruin and leaving the editors to blame. What a good thing that we've updated the teaching of math. When AA started, I believe 4% of Americans had a college or university degree. It's over 40% today. In part, the credit for this increase in educational acumen may be attributed to the idea that while we teach the same old numbers and equations to 11-year-olds, we've improved the means of imparting this age-old wisdom. Today, bringing up the view that the big book as a textbook was intended to be tinkered with will create a reaction. Said reaction will range from bobble-headed agreement in one corner to conflict verging on hostility in another. One of the conclusions an online AA chat group came to about changing the book was how about instead a new book, another book? Wasn't it way more likely that a new book would see the light of day than altering the big book would ever happen? Let the literalists crowd around their sacred text with Amish-like quaintness as AA inches towards our 100th birthday. I'm trying to be serious about this. The Amish, Mennonites, or Hutterites, they've taken a pass on modern life in favor of the lifestyle of their ancestors. And who's to say they got it wrong and we live such a higher quality gadget-dependent life? Maybe everyone can have what they want. Instead of taking away, we could just add something. Let another book for humanists, progressive and forward-thinking members be written by and for the fellowship of today. Long after we're gone, the next generation can take what they like and leave the rest. Neither book ought to belittle or be threatening to those who read the other. But won't that be confusing for the newcomer is the battle cry of the change resistant. Maybe choice will cause confusion. Maybe our inability to adapt will cause confusion. If the newcomer needs clarification, I expect someone will help them along the way. Again, the more pressing question that came to me in this discussion about the big book is still this. Why and when did the big book become so central or sacred in AA culture? 
Again, for those who think that a 1940s Ohio-style reading of the big book can yield 75% success, go on, keep doing that. No one will stop you from flocking to big book study retreats. And if you feel the religious, archaic, misogynist writing is cramping your style, ignore it. No more persecution, no more oppression. Go forth and be the only no big book, no problem that someone else might ever see. If others fear for your sobriety because you're not doing it the way the first 100 did, who cares what others think? Again, the author of that book reminds us that full individual liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy, whatever, should be the first consideration of us all. Let's not pressure anyone with our individual or our collective views. How did feelings about a book ever get so polarized? Our history holds some clues. Going back to my history, my experience, it was 1974 when I came to my first meeting and 1976 when I got sober. In Montreal, Canada, I can't recall a single big book study group that I or any of my running mates attended. Living sober and came to believe were new books and this is what people were excited about. The 12 and 12 was a more modern, relevant look at the 12 steps written by a wiser, more experienced Bill Wilson. He didn't write it alone. I just learned that Jack Alexander, author of that game-changing Saturday Night Post article in the 1940s, he, Jack, at the time that the 12 and 12 was being written, was one of our non-alcoholic Class A trustees, and he helped edit the final edition of 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Hey, have you ever heard, there's no rules in AA, and plenty of people to explain them to you. What is AA orthodoxy if there's just one self-identifying membership requirement? An AA meeting is still an AA meeting without how it works or some other tribute to our big book being read or quoted, we can be in AA meeting without praying, without reading, or we don't have to say my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. There were meetings before there was a book. AA is like the United Nations of 115,000 countries. Sovereign meetings that decide for themselves what the practices, rituals, and doctrines are going to be in the meeting there seems to be a certain degree of voluntary orthodoxy or a tendency to mimic what other groups have done. Is that rigid? Is that reification at work? Or is that an innocent reflection of human nature? I've been to AA meetings and other 12-step mutual aid groups in six countries. With Still, I've been to less than 1% of all AA meetings. I'm hardly qualified to talk about AA as a whole. I turn instead to a couple of members who have heard from groups and members from around the world. They've read and heard outpourings of gratitude, criticisms, demands to have local disputes adjudicated, and good ideas about how AA could be better. There are many who fit this profile, but I'm going to draw upon Bob P. and John K., Let's start with Bob. I never met the late Bob P. up close. He was born in 1917 and died in 2008. I remember the one time I saw Bob from a distance. I was at the World Conference in 1985. 
Bob P. welcomed everyone to Montreal's Olympic Stadium. AA was 50 years old, and I was half that age. It was great to be back in Montreal for me. I left Montreal for Calgary back in 1979, and now I was living six hours away from my hometown in Toronto, Ontario. I was excited about the Montreal Conference. I'd be seeing friends from my first home group, from Western Canada and from Toronto, all in the same place. So that was the only time I laid eyes on Bob P. as I watched the opening ceremonies from the stands in Montreal, along with tens of thousands of others. Ten months later, Bob P. would give the closing talk in April 1986 at the 36th General Service Conference. Not that I was paying much attention to such things at the time. I was active in service, but much more focused on the Young People's Movement, which was vibrant in Toronto, as it had been in Calgary and in Montreal before that. Toronto Young People's was organized with local dances, an annual Toronto Young People's Conference, which they facetiously called TIPSY, from the acronym TYPC. We were also talking about and preparing for bidding for the International Conference of Young People in AA, better known as ICIPAW. So it would be much later that I would get to know about Bob P. as I developed a curiosity about the history of our culture. But now I can tell you this about the man Bob P. He came to AA in 1961. And three years into sobriety, drawing on his professional background of public relations, he found himself involved in AA's public information. In short order, he was working with Bill Wilson. In a Reader's Digest article about Bill Wilson, Bob describes meeting him. Bill was slouched in a chair, his feet up on a battered oak desk that was scarred with dozens of burn marks from cigarette stubs. When he stood, he was six feet, two inches tall, slender and loose-limbed. He had a long face and sparkling blue eyes. He acted as if meeting me was the nicest thing that had happened to him in years. I'm Bill, he said, stretching out his hand. I'm a drunk. I started mumbling how I owed him my life, and Bill, embarrassed, looked at the floor and said, well, just pass it on. Bob's whole AA story can be found in the big book in the stories entitled AA Taught Him to Handle Sobriety. Bob P. served as director of Grapevine, director of AA World Service, and as general service trustee. Bob was general manager of the general service office until 1984, and he was acting as a senior advisor when he gave this last speech about AA's future. Hindsight suggests that he showed a quality of an oracle as he addressed the 1986 General Service Conference. It was Bob's 18th General Service Conference. Imagine that a delegate goes to two conferences, and Bob had been to 18 of 36 of them, half of them. He talks first about the past. I've lived through nearly half of the fellowship's history, and with each passing year I feel more and more blessed to have come in touch with many of our early giants of AA. I knew Bill, of course, and literally sat at his feet as he spun his famous bedtime story. I heard Bernard Smith deliver his last talk at the Miami International Convention. 
brilliant and articulate, his contributions were tremendous. Marty M. helped me in my early sobriety, and I even lunched frequently at the ANSA Club with Popsy M., who took Marty to her first meeting at 182 Clinton Street. Also with Bert T., whose loan from his mortgaged shop enabled the big book to be published. It was Dr. Harry T. Boat who sent me to AA. They are all gone now and legions more like them. The memories bring tears to my eyes. But there is one remarkable AA pioneer still with us today, Dr. Jack Norris. He's been a tower of strength for over 36 years. He's lived more AA history than the rest of us put together. Indeed, he not only lived it, he helped make it. Cherish him. We will not see the likes of him again. The other person here I must thank by name is John B. He came on board at GSO in May 1984 and in due course succeeded me. Thanks to his tolerance and understanding, the succession has been effortless without a harsh word or an uncomfortable situation between us. John has a fine mind and a wealth of management know-how, and he's a very active and faithful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are fortunate to have him in this period of some serious problems. GSO's affairs are in good hands. Bob also paid tribute to Gordon Patrick and so many valuable non-alcoholic trustees, with a capital N in non-alcoholic, as Bob would say. He commented that he had worked with 1,700 delegates from North America, reminding us that neither credit nor gratitude can be apportioned among the different kinds of service work. So much to this group, so much to that. All are essential, regardless of title. In fact, the most important title in Alcoholics Anonymous, the only one that really counts, is AA Member. As they say, the highest you can get in AA is sober. Then Bob talked about the future. I have no truck with those bleeding deacons who decry every change and view the state of the fellowship with pessimism and alarm. On the contrary, from my nearly quarter century's perspective, I see Alcoholics Anonymous as large, healthier, more dynamic, faster growing, more global, more service-minded, more back-to-basics, and more spiritual by far than when I came through the doors to my first meeting in Greenwich, Connecticut, just one year after the famous Long Beach Convention. AA has flourished beyond the wildest dreams of founding members, though perhaps not of Bill himself. He was a true visionary. I echo those who feel that if the fellowship ever faulted or fails, it will not be because of outside causes. No, it will not be because of treatment centers or professionals in the field or non-conference-approved literature or young people or the duly addicted or even the druggies trying to come to our closed meetings. If we stick close to our traditions and our concepts and our warranties, and if we keep an open mind and an open heart, we can deal with these and any other problems that we will ever have. If we ever falter and fail, it will simply be because of us. It will be because we can't control our own egos, nor get along well enough with each other. 
It will be because we have too much fear and rigidity and not enough trust and common sense. I mentioned rigidity. If you were to ask me what the greatest danger facing Alcoholics Anonymous today is, I would have to answer the growing rigidity. That is so apparent to me and many others. The increasing demands for absolute answers to nitpicking questions, pressure from GSO to enforce our traditions, screening alcoholics at closed meetings, prohibiting non-conference approved literature, i.e. banning books, laying more and more rules on groups and members. The decline of the church at the end of the Middle Ages was symbolized by their neglect of human suffering and the souls of sinners to argue in their conclaves over how many angels can stand on the head of a pen. My friends, at our conclave this week, I heard some arguments over how many angels can stand on the head of a pen. And in this trend towards rigidity, we are drifting farther and farther away from our co-founders. Bill, in particular, must be spinning in his grave, for I remind you that he was perhaps the most permissive person I ever met. One of his favorite sayings was, every group has the right to be wrong. He was maddeningly tolerant of his critics. He had absolute faith that faults in AA were self-correcting. Bob went on to describe Bill W.'s last public appearance, dying of emphysema and being wheeled to the microphone in Miami in 1970 before a crowd of one-tenth of the size of the Montreal crowd that Bob had addressed only months before. The entire speech of Bob P. can be found in Box 459. I encourage anyone to read it. I called Bob Oracle-like. It was 1986, and AA was still growing and would continue to grow until it peaked out in the early 90s at 2.2 million members. Rigidity, which he warned of, causes stagnation. That stagnation, at least in the members of people who embrace AA as their home away from home, would come a half a decade after his speech. I'll tell you what I do remember about the mid-1980s. It was a boom era for alcohol and drug treatment. Anyone a year sober, any neophyte without a resume that warranted gainful employment in their career of choice, could become a treatment professional. And some of AA did, balancing their very different roles as counselor at work and rank-and-file member in their home group. Step four, which I talked about from my 1976 perspective, well, now there were books and manuals and systems. The newest and latest, greatest thing came out every month. AA finally gave way to membership requests for a daily reflection book because so many other Me Too organizations were filling that need, which resulted in Hazelton and other 24-hour-a-day books being formally read or informally referred to in meetings. There was talk of GSO creating a how-to step four guide by AA for AA just to quell the flow of ACA or Hazelton or Betty Ford or NA this way, that way guides that were, as we lovingly say, confusing the newcomer. GSO decided that how-to literature was a bad idea. 
our collective experience had been that when we codify our oral tradition, it does tend to create rigidity. Let's bring John Kay into the discussion and look at his first-hand experience looking up at AA from the bottom of the inverted service triangle. In a general sharing session in November of 2003, John Kay, general service trustee, mirrored, in some ways, what Bob had said almost 20 years earlier. John recalls our co-founders were pragmatists. Try something, test it, change it, review it, test it, then change, review, test it again. As a result, our knowledge as a fellowship is based not on logic or revelation or authority. It's based on experience, on what works, and as such, it is always subject to change. This isn't what we hear from today's big book literalists. Their view of history was that conformity to a single process and uniformed interpretation was what worked then and what was authoritatively intended for all time. I don't know if they're right or wrong, but I know muckers and thumpers are encroaching on mainstream AA. I wonder sometimes if people think for themselves. Like zombies, some members repeatedly drone the words of dead men from one cliché to the next with the same inflection as they heard their sponsor's sponsor use. This walking dead brand of sobriety, while I'm sure it's effective for a good number of members, misses the point that our founders emphasized. John Kay spoke of the balancing act Bill Wilson wrote about in November 1960. As we contemplate the traditions, we see that they have two main characteristics. Each aspect reinforces the other. The first aspect of the Twelve Traditions is protection. The second aspect is progress. While literalists or bookers or thumpers protect either a true or imagined historical process that saved a true or imagined 75% of all who pass through our gateway, why have they forsaken progress? Why sneer at newcomers speaking a language learned from cutting-edge treatment centers and tell them, we have to unteach all that psychobabble you learned in treatment? Thumpers seem to be all for protection at the expense of progress, or as John Kay put it, test it, change it, review it. I don't think that the cutting-edge treatment is either a threat to or a replacement for 12-step fellowship or culture. But on the other side of the ledger, how are thumpers any threat to a more liberal, self-defined addiction, self-defined sobriety regimen? Thumping and praying and recitation of folklore is not contagious, nor does it impose any ritual or limits on your group or mine, each group is autonomous. John talks about the difference between, say, pamphlets that welcome subcultures inside AA to, say, how to make amends, or how to define a higher power, or how to take a personal inventory style of pamphlet. Every time we develop a new recovery pamphlet, he says, I believe we say welcome to a whole new group of alcoholics who might otherwise 
feel our message was not intended for them, or worse, that they would be unwelcome. Every time we develop a how-to guideline, I believe we run the risk of implying that this is the only way to do things. In the process, we may discourage innovation or even scare our members off from service by creating the impression that they need vast training before even trying. I believe we need to produce more of the first type of literature, when appropriate, and less of the second. In one regard, John Kay reiterates the message from Bob P. almost two decades earlier. At every regional forum I attend, he says, I notice how eager some of our members are to turn over power to GSO or the corporate boards. Some seem to want to reduce services which should involve as much contact as possible with other recovering alcoholics to as few computer keystrokes as possible. Some are eager to avoid inconvenience in service even if it results in bypassing the service structure completely. Others want to install rituals and orthodoxy which, by their nature, are always authoritative, even at the expense of setting our upside-down triangle seriously a wobble. I hope our vision for the future emphasizes the AA group as the fundamental unit of recovery. I hope our vision includes an AA where groups still have the right to be wrong. In short, I hope our vision of AA's future includes a willingness to engage in a continuous moral inventory of our collective behavior and to include as many of our members as possible in every aspect of that exercise. Some of our trusted servants encourage orthodoxy. A current delegate writes in a Toronto Intergroup AA newsletter about singleness of purpose. While one member fears rigidity, we can always find those that warn us against the risks that lurk behind imagination and autonomy. Here's what the September Better Times had to say about things. The last part of Tradition 4, except in matters affecting AA as a whole, tells us that our fellowship has a singleness of purpose and that a group is subservient to the whole, not above it. We can have groups with personalities, groups that have variations in form, but not groups that have variations in substance. It is not up to the group to reinvent the model or rewrite the cookbook. It's up to the group to undertake the application of these principles in all their affairs and pass on a clean, clear, message that reflects the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as interpreted first by our founders and later our conference, and each and every day by us AAs. Group subservient to the whole, not above it? That's another way of looking at it compared to what other stewards have to say. Let's install rituals and orthodoxy, which John was concerned with, as he stated by their nature, are always authoritative, even at the expense of setting our upside-down triangle seriously a wobble. A subservient group in an AA that demanded anything would be a service triangle a wobble for sure. 
we have one AA view that uniformity is the glue that ought to bind us, not the unity of many chaotic voices, but uniformity of a single voice. John Kay concluded his 2003 talk with, I hope our vision for the future emphasizes the AA group as the fundamental unit of recovery. I hope our vision includes an AA where groups still have the right to be wrong. Toronto Better Times suggests too much risk in too much latitude. The Singleness of Purpose article concludes, We must always be vigilant in protecting our program's magnificent concept of singleness of purpose. It is that singleness of purpose that will sustain us when forces, almost always from within, want to mold and morph our purpose to suit their own goals or objectives. When the newcomer arrives in the room for the first time, it is our ability to share a consistent, clear, and uncomplicated story of a recovery solution, one that does not confuse from meeting to meeting or area to area. Personal opinions have no place in our rooms, nor do rewrites or self-styled improvements to the basic text. We have a spiritual solution to a deadly foe who wants nothing more than to kill us. We can never afford to look away from that, not even for an instant. What drama! What an alarming prospect! Confused newcomer falling prey to a deadly foe because the spiritual solution was confused from meeting to meeting or area to area. Progress is too risky. Protecting a sacred message ensures victory over our foe who wants nothing more than to kill us. Is adaptation, imagination, and self-styled improvements the enemy of AA? I agree that this would represent comforting stewardship for some in our fellowship, maybe even the majority of our membership. Bill saw ignoring progress as equally foolish as ignoring protection. Why do people fear change? Another word for progress that Bill spoke of. I speculate that if motivation boils down to one of two forces being a a desire for change and b fear of loss, if we feel both, fear of loss trumps desire for gain. I think in my own sobriety, it wasn't desire for a good and meaningful sober life that got me sober. It was fear of the consequences. It was loss, the benefit of a good and sober life. That was always there for the taking, but the desire for a good life was no motivation. Fear of it getting worse. Now that got me thinking straight. I guess the reification over adaptation motivated members are no different than me. They fear that the magic spell that keeps us all sober is at risk with any change of word or ritual. Change is seen as risking it all, any misstep, and all will be banished to hell. What if extinction was what we feared? Ever thought of that? Every society that doesn't adapt goes by the wayside. It's like the frog in the slowly boiling water. We wouldn't voluntarily boil ourselves to death, but the transition to death comes slowly enough that by the time we notice there is trouble, it's too late. We can't logically separate someone from a position that they've come to emotionally. Otherwise, I would have logically seen sobriety as wiser than continuing with my addiction and dying drunk. 
In the July 1965 digital archive of Grapevine, I heard Bill W. say, Never fear needed change. Certainly we have to discriminate between change for the worse and change for the better. It isn't change for the better that better times is fearing. It's change for the worse. How do we know if change is change for the better or change for the worse? John Kay described AA as try this and see how it works. Try that and see how it works. He describes an AA that never rested on our laurels. He talked of an AA that never feared if a group got it wrong. Bill said in 65 that if a group or AA as a whole identifies a need to change, he doesn't say to ignore the need as an ego-feeding proposition or a risk to be discouraged and feared. He didn't talk about a group that was subordinate to the approval of others or some AA authority. Instead, the 1965 Grapevine article, as Bill sees it, page 115 if you prefer, says this, We cannot stand still or look the other way. The essence of growth is a willingness to change for the better, and then an unremitting willingness to shoulder whatever responsibility that entails. We have to be unafraid of being wrong. We can identify change for the better from change from the worse beforehand. What about honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness? Are these temporary demands for the first months of sobriety or a way of life forever? AA isn't growing. I don't know if that means we're failing, but if we could help more people, I think we should help more people. If that means trying something new, we're encouraged to overcome our closed-mindedness. And when we try something, it might not work. We ought to be willing to say we were wrong and try something else with the same enthusiasm. If we try something and we confuse the newcomer, can we cross that bridge when we get to it? Aren't we projecting our fear of change onto them? Is that stewardship? Or is that bureaucracy? Enough already. That's it from me. We'd love to hear from you. News at rebelliondogs.com or just pass your comments along on Facebook or Twitter. As we're recording this session, episode 7 of Rebellion Dogs Radio, my mind is somewhat on Santa Monica, California. November 6th to 8th, 2014, which, while we're recording, is in the future. I don't know when you're listening to this. Anyhow, in Santa Monica, I'll be attending the We Agnostics and Freethinkers International Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not far from there is a town called Idlewild, and this is a song by Maya Dyson. She's an Aussie, moved to California, and this is her song to celebrate... Southern California. Thanks for being with us. I hope you stay happy, joyous, and free.
visit rebelliondogspublishing.com for a transcript of today's show. This is episode number seven.